All right, Ben, there's like a lot of unfair stuff in life, right? There is a lot of unfair stuff in life. I agree. What? What's some of the unfair stuff that hacks you off? <laughs> well, I, I think perhaps today we're focusing on the workplace. So there's all kinds of stuff that happens. I mean, if you think back across your career, there's there are numerous examples, perhaps, that you could think of, of people who, you know, get promoted, who maybe shouldn't, in your opinion, uh, or, you know, maybe you're the person who's working really hard, and uh, the reward you get for that is more hard work, and everybody else yeah. doesn't get it, get to, you know, yeah. You're on a team full of numbskulls, right? And you, meanwhile, you're like, yeah, I'm going to work real hard and get ahead. And they're like, man, we can't promote this guy. The team productivity will disappear. So what are we going to do? We're going to give them more work. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Sorry, man. You can, you're going to get more work, no promotion. And how about a crisp pie five? <laughs> right. You know, there's all kinds of other ways in which we see unfairness in the workplace. We see you know, projects or departments that perhaps get prioritized in a way that, which they shouldn't for budgeting. You see supervisors who manipulate information people who get away with just being rude and, you know, they condescend, they're condescending in their attitude towards others. And then, of course, things like discrimination and harassment. So today on the Indigo Podcast, we're going to discuss fairness at work. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Right, so fairness has a whole bunch of stuff. Like, it's really unfair that LeBron James can do what he does on the court, right? It's uh, it's really it's unfair. Not unfair. It's, not, it's not unfair, I don't think. It's just the way... He, he is. Well, we're going to talk about some of that lens about fairness, right? Like, we're not all the same. Sure. Right? You're not, you're way better looking, taller, handsomer. I mean, you look good in a suit. You could sling a million pound kettlebell. I, I don't have any of that stuff. And so, yet there's something in our psyche, right, that would say, hey, this is, unfair because there's this idea of fairness right and we're going to talk about different types of fairness mm -hmm. right um if you have fairness of outcome right right now you may work harder than me and longer hours and so is was the per hour fairness quotient met like you know they can have some of those kinds of things but there's different types of fairness fairness of effort fairness and we're going to talk about different lenses of, and we're going to introduce, I want to introduce this word from the literature, which is justice, mm -hmm. right? People use justice and fairness um, interchangeably. The smart people that look at this stuff in the dungeons of universities <laughs> use the word justice and fairness for that. And then we're going to talk about that whole idea about outcomes of fair and unfair treatment. You know, like, what does this really do to society and the workplace? And then, obviously, we'd love to talk about implications for individuals, leaders, and organizations writ large. So let's hop into it and talk about some of these different types of fairness. And as you mentioned, in the world of organizational psychology, we typically call this organizational justice. And it has to do with perceptions of fairness. This is an area of scholarly inquiry that's been 
ongoing for a number of decades. And the reason that I think it has persisted and proven valuable is that it matters. That's one of the big findings is that fairness matters. We care about fairness as humans and we care about it in the workplace. And so today we'll talk about those different types of fairness and then we'll talk about why why people should care about it, some of those outcomes. So maybe we start with some of these different types of fairness. And, and generally, uh, in the academic literature, at least, and I think this is also a helpful way to categorize these different types of fairness at a practical level, there are generally about four different types of justice that we typically talk about. And uh, so let's, uh, let's hop into those. So what's the first one? All right. Distributive justice. That's right. And we've got... so. Smart people in the, the field of industrial and organizational psychology will come up with, hey, what are some cool questions that let us assess if these kind of shenanigans are happening, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's not just looking at the shenanigans. Yeah, These are a validated assessment scales. It's not always shenanigans, but they right. smart people are like, what are a few questions we could ask to know? To assess this piece, right? To say, yes. um, what, what level of organizational justice perceptions are we seeing in this workplace? Or do people tend to report? Yeah. So, so for distributive justice, w one of the main questions is our statements that you could mark true or false to or put on a scale of some sort of my supervisor made sure that opportunities and rewards were distributed fairly. Right. So as the name implies, distributive justice is about the distribution of rewards. And those rewards could be things like uh, bonuses, opportunities, praise, other types of of um, valued things in the workplace, and you know I think we can all think of those types of of decisions that happen that we can either agree or not agree with. And you know that was fair, that wasn't fair. You know how the um, maybe it's the outcome of some sort of decision about restructuring in an organization, and we we could say well. Oh, so they're they're putting these people over here and these people over here. That doesn't seem fair or or something like that. This is probably the most commonly uh, talked about or or at least I think in the in most people's minds, this is what we oftentimes think about when we think about justice first. Um, but there's kind of a, it's kind of the first layer of the organizational justice onion. The thing the thing on this is, uh, you know, you can think of it at broad base, like who gets cash or what? You know, mm -hmm. why is this manager at the manager level in an org making more than this manager at the manager level in the org or uh, sales compensation structure commission? Hey, we get five percent. Mm -hmm. Why is he getting seven? Yep. Well, he's the owner's kid, right? And so, oh, okay. We give him a mulligan because he's the owner's kid. But if he wasn't, then it wouldn't be <laughs> fair, right? Well, I don't know if I don't know if we would give him a mulligan, but oh, it, well, you know, maybe I'm not a big sports ball person, so maybe I use yeah. We wouldn't give him a retry. That's not the right term, but we'll give him a you know. Well, I, I don't. I don't even think we would think it's necessarily fair, right? I mean, nepotism we oftentimes perceive as being unfair. But that's the exact point is mm -hmm. there's different things. And some people, so when we think about distributive justice, how stuff gets distributed, you know, Ben, we were talking to somebody, what, just yesterday that was talking about the difference in work from home. Some people think it's unfair that certain functions in an organization, and we saw this with some of our previous clients, hey, 
the backroom staff and accounting and IT can work from the house, but the manufacturing employees have to come into the office. Mm. That's not fair or that's not justice or, hey, Mm -hmm. you know, these people are really interested in promotions and all that stuff or accolades or a a quarterly uh, team barbecue. And this one really got my heart yesterday, Ben. I'd just like to leave 15 minutes early because that makes my commute so short so I could see my kids. Mm -hmm. Because we place different value on different types of rewards and opportunities, right? Right. Distributive justice can be a really hard one, even for people that want to do it well. For sure. And one of the big reasons why it's so hard is that people value different things, as you alluded to. And I think your example of remote work policy is actually a very good example that's relevant right now, because you know, obviously the past couple of years, there's been a lot of turmoil and change with regard to where people are working. And as you know, in the, in, then in the more, more recent months, uh, organizations are trying to figure out and navigate how they persist or don't in that with regard to uh, working from home and so forth. So uh, that's a, that's a good example. But that's distributive justice. You know how uh, different things that people value are being allocated in the organization. Uh, so we can have perceptions of fairness around that stuff. Interestingly, there's another type of justice that oftentimes it's actually a little bit, even a little bit more important. And I think it's a really interesting one. And this is called procedural justice. And procedural justice is all about the process or the procedures that were used to make a decision. So you might not like the outcome. You might not like how different resources are being allocated or different uh, people are getting different things. But if you understand the procedure used to make that decision, and if you agree that those procedures were ethical and fair uh, and based on accurate information, then uh, you're more likely to say, okay, I I don't like the outcome, but the process was fair and I'll live with it. Uh, So the procedural justice, that's a, a really important one. Yeah. The awesome smart guy assessment statement for that is, My supervisor made sure that his or her decisions were made fairly and ethically based on accurate information and unbiased procedures. Now, this one's super challenging because we're humans and it's it's messy. Right. What if you've got some like a a single newly single mom who's still going through a divorce and is juggling, you know, child care? When my wife and I were in Nashville, they were like 12 months booked up. Mm -hmm. But the gestation is nine months. So you have to be like, maybe we're going to get pregnant in three months because we booked (laughs) and we can't be paying for a child kit. Right. Anyway, we have these messy things going on and being completely fair from a procedure perspective can oftentimes roll right over somebody's humanity. Hey, that person was late four times. Why weren't they fired? Right? We say, you know, three times and you're out. And yet we know that person has challenging times. Meanwhile, the other person was late three times and fired according to policy. 
but maybe wasn't as understandable. There's like some bias and stuff that can go there. Nobody wants to work in an organization where it's by the book with no exceptions. But the minute you start having those exceptions, right, from a procedural justice kind of perspective, it could seem unfair. Maybe. So you're looking again, at me, Ben, yeah, like I'm lost, lost here. Right. So I think, yeah. So the procedures matter. Uh, but if the procedures themselves are perceived as unfair, then I'm going, I'm, it's not just like, okay, they didn't follow the procedure. Um, you know, if I don't think those procedures were fair, then my perception of procedural justice is going to be low. Right. right. So, um, it, it depends on the quality of the procedures. If it's some sort of, um, procedure that's applied across the board with no exceptions, no consideration of context, uh, I will likely perceive procedural justice as being low in that situation, even though the procedures are being followed. It's that I think that the procedures were bad, right? So I think it's really important to remember that this is a perceptual, a necessarily and inherently subjective perception, right, of fairness. And, and that matters because our subjective, you know, individual perceptions of fairness influence things like our individual uh uh, decisions on how much effort we're going to expend at work or how committed we're going to be to the organization or how satisfied we are in our work or whether or not we think about quitting. So those subjective things matter. And this is in the eye of the beholder. And that's really, really important to remember from a supervisor standpoint. Exactly. Here, here's one that was really common, um, at least growing up. I don't know if this is still the case with the labor shortage. If you are late to your shift at a restaurant, you're fired on the spot. Mm. Yeah, I bet. I doubt they're doing that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I de- yeah, it's like, like some things didn't age well, <laughs> yeah. but just like Dayquil. Dayquil didn't age well either. Sick. Doesn't ma- power through it with Dayquil getting your uh, peers also sick. But that's that whole thing. Now, somebody, though, that works and is always on time for their shift might be like, heck yeah, because, you know, it's hard to get restaurant staff to show up and stay committed. And this is one of those things. But right. now maybe that procedural justice just doesn't make much sense. Sure. Okay. So we talked about distributive justice, procedural justice. Uh, the, another type of justice that we see in organizations that people apparently care about, and I agree, they do care about, is called interpersonal justice. So this has to do with how people are being treated with dignity and respect and with how they communicate and interact. So you know, a uh, a survey item that could be used to assess this is my supervisor was generally respectful and polite when discussing work-related issues with me. And oh, by the way, uh, these one-item survey measures that we're using to um, give as examples of how you might assess these types of organizational justice, some, some people out there in the world of biopsychology might be like, you can't use one item to assess something on a survey. Well, it turns out- You can on a podcast, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps, but also there's a really great article, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes. It just came out uh, not too long ago in the Journal of Business and Psychology um, by Russell Matthews and uh, co-authors. It's called Normalizing the Use of Single Item Measures. And they basically went through and they validated a whole bunch of of single item measures that you can uh, ostensibly use for- for measurement of these types of attitudes and perceptions. So anyway, I, I digress into a little bit of nerddom there. Yeah, for the IO site guys that yeah. wear people out, he's like, man, so what are you going to do on this consulting engagement? 
Well, you we like to survey your staff. Oh, no, 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 no. We've seen you guys. We've done like 50 <laughs> surveys this month. <laughs> right. So survey fatigue's real. Yeah, one yeah. item assessments can help. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so there are some one item assessments for these different types of justice uh, that apparently have some good uh, reliability and, and validity. So anyway, um, interpersonal justice is one that's really important, you know, because let's think about it. If let's say re- rewards are being allocated fairly, uh, you perceive that as being fair. So distributive justice. Fine. Uh, they're using good decision-making processes to make those decisions. Um, so procedural justice, great. Uh, but you know what? My supervisor is kind of a jerk to me and in how they communicate and they say condescending things to me and they're just, you know, they get away with being rude. Um, I feel like that that's a perception of, um, of unjust behavior because it, it's like, hey, I, I'm a person too and you should be treating me with, with some dignity and respect here. I see this all the time, Ben. We say it all the time. You can't fake this stuff. Fake caring for your employees and the demeaning, condescending attitude of, I am management. Look look at my cardigan. It's impeccable. And, <laughs> oh, the, the individual contributors are here. Oh, gosh. They, they even have a distinct odor. You know, like, this is... <laughs> This is distinct. The employees pick up on it and they fantasize about your like death in a fiery car accident because you're so demeaning. Everybody is existentially valuable right now. People's contributions are definitely different. And there's definitely some people I'm like, oh, my gosh, their their carbon emissions probably aren't worth the squeeze. But but on a team. In an organization, everybody, we're all on the team. Everybody isn't the top, even in, even the top level of sports, everybody's not the top player, right? Everybody's not the LeBron James on that team. But LeBron can't single-handedly take on any other thing. So it, you got to take responsibility if you have an underperforming staff member. You or somebody within your team hired them. And so you owe them the base level, gosh darn it, you owe them the base level of respect as somebody that got on the team, Mm -hmm. right? And so that doesn't mean you can't fire somebody for underperforming. You got to keep those procedural justice things going and all that kind of stuff. But there's a base level of respect that you're a cohort of humans on this planet trying to do something. Mm -hmm. And at the bare minimum, be respectful and polite to somebody, even if they've driven you up the wall and like, I don't know. Yeah, I I think just from a, an attitude standpoint and an interactional standpoint, you just have to take the high road as as a supervisor and and model that for your team so that they treat each other with respect and politeness rather than trying to slit each other's throat and climb up the corporate ladder. Right. You just don't want that. So we've talked about distributive justice, procedural justice, interpersonal justice. This last piece is what we call informational justice. And informational justice could, might be assessed as uh, something that you would might say, my supervisor explained decisions that affected me and my work in a thorough and timely way. So having some context for how decisions are being made, getting the information you need, you know, sometimes a violation of informational justice could look like, you know, withholding information um, from different people on a team. It could be, you know, not explaining what's happening and why. 
And that, again, feels unfair. We like to have some transparency about what's going on and how decisions are being made. And so that's one way that uh, that we perceive fairness in the workplace. Yeah, people, it's always an interesting thing with the people that we've coached that keep their cards super close to their chest as a means of exerting power. Now, there's mm. times where you have to, hey, you're going to have a merger and there's some legal things you can't disclose. Or, hey, yeah, tough decisions get made in business sometimes. But if you're just withholding information from people to place yourself in a place of importance or to, you know, those kinds of things, those are, that's a rube move. Yeah. You know? And so I think there's there's a couple of reasons why, and we'll get into this maybe a little bit later, but, you know, violations of organizational justice by managers is not always a, a function of their uh, male- malevolence, that they're trying to manipulate people. We want to think that they're bad so we can hate them, but they're not. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes it might just be the fact that they're extremely busy. It might just be that they're not, they don't have this this mindset that, you know, they really need to communicate more than they think they need to communicate. And because of that, they could unintentionally have this consequence of a perception of, of unfairness. And then that can lead to a whole host of, of bad outcomes. So, you know, um, uh, there are a lot of things that can kind of lead to these perceptions of unfairness. Uh, you know, one thing that's important that we've kind of alluded to this a little bit is, uh, you know, a lack of employee voice. Um, and when we talk about voice, you know, having giving people a way to provide input when decisions are being made, listening to people, uh, you know, making sure actively engaging with folks to make sure that they um, have have a way to to talk about you know changes that affect them, uh, and uh, when people feel like they are heard, and when they are actually heard, again, it's not about just let's make them feel like they're being heard. We're not actually going to listen to them. You got to actually do this stuff. Um, that that's a good thing. So. Uh, you know, that's another way that you can you can look at this fairness issue. Yeah, the employee voice thing is clutch. And something that I see over and over and over within organizations is employees will say, you're not listening. But they're equating you're not listening for you're not doing what we think you should do. Right? And giving employee voice is saying, hey, we're going to hear, we're going to understand, we're going to brief back to you, the employee body, Hey, this is what you said. Is this correct? Are we understanding it correctly? Okay, we hear you. However, sadly, we cannot go that direction. And here's why. Or we're going to choose to do this other thing. You know, they have a voice. The reasonable employee voices will understand that you have to make leadership decisions and those kinds of things. But I want to be specific around the employee voice means really hearing them and reflecting back to them. And for employees that are angry at the evil management, as it were, um, them listening to you doesn't mean executing exactly what you want. Which brings us to this other piece, which is treating management different from the way you treat employees. Mm. And ugh, Ben. Yeah, I, I just, you know, this is one of those things where um, when there's a perception of favorites being played, uh, that's problematic. You know, there's a whole nother kind of area of, of research and a whole other topic called organizational politics. Um, and it, 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 it has a close nexus with organizational justice. 
because when people feel like there's kind of these, uh, you know, behind the scene deals being made and people playing favorites, um, then there's oftentimes, a, you know, a decrease in trust uh, and certainly a decrease in uh, perceptions of fairness. So uh, making sure that you have, you know, a, a consistent way in which you're approaching people, regardless of kind of their their hierarchy um, is very important. So, you know, one thing that was interesting that you and I discussed when we were prepping this episode is that, you know, we have all of these different ideas about what's fair and what's not. And those, where do those come from? Where do these ideas of fairness come from? And, uh, you know, we, we could certainly debate that in a lot of different ways. But one place that some of that comes from, or at least influences that, is kind of the, the norms that we've come to accept uh, in life. Um, it could be a function of how you're raised, the different uh, types of situations you've been in, your education, and of course, your work experiences. You know, if you've been around work experiences that where everyone is out to get you and there is no fairness and very little trust, it's going to be hard for you to imagine, imagine a world where there is actual fairness. Uh, so I think it's, it's just interesting to think about how these, these norms develop and so forth. And it does come, come through, uh, you know, our, our upbringing and our experiences and, uh, that can differ between people. Yeah. I'm thinking about the, the kids marshmallows study, or is it the marshmallows? They put a kid in a room with some treats and then the researcher like steps out to see who could delay gratification. Like, mm -hmm. hey, if you don't eat any of these candies, we're going to get to be even more candies later. And one of the things that they found is that kids that are in an environment of abundance. Where they, you know, things just happen all the time, they're way more likely to be able to resist and have that kind of self-control. Mm. Right. And so I say all these things to say. Our families and our our origin, to use our Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe stuff, our origin stories really shade our perceptions. So if we want to kind of come out of our own cognitive world for a minute and kind of imagine ourselves in a helicopter looking down, you'll see a landscape of a bunch of different people with a bunch of different perceptions. And the challenges as an employee or a leader within an org and as an organization who are making policy within that environment is to realize there's a lot of different lenses here. Yeah. Well, and that's why explaining, talking about, being explicit about the norms that you're trying to influence within a team or an organization is so important because you can't assume that everybody is coming to the table with the same sheet of music. So you need to, over time, this takes time and it happens not only through words, but certainly through actions help to curate a common sheet of music for what's acceptable here and what's not acceptable here. This and, gets into- And why. And why, absolutely. So, I mean, this gets into other topics of, you know, organizational climate and culture and so forth. But uh, I, I think that's, it's, it's definitely something that's very important to, to remember is that what's maybe obvious to you is not obvious to other people. What's obvious to them is not obvious to you. And hence, it makes a lot of sense for anyone in a leadership position to, uh, to to handle this with care and to make sure that they are being intentional instead of accidental in their creation of a high-performing culture and team. Right. So at one of the things 
Let's talk about some outcomes of this mm. fair and unfair treatment, because there's going to be stuff that's fair and unfair that happens. Uh, hopefully, we're working towards a more just uh, organizational behavior, society, family lives, communities, like all of that kind of stuff. I It would take a real weirdo to stand up in the public square and say, I'm seeking more unfairness. Who's with me? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, one interesting way to think about this in terms of an outcome has to do with motivation, your motivation at work. And the theory of motivation that has to do with these perceptions of fairness is something we call equity theory. Uh, and equity theory has a, a handful of different parts. And I think it might be helpful and interesting for our listeners just to kind of walk through these with us. So, uh, the, the first part of equity theory is that all of us, to some degree, hold a belief about our inputs and our outcomes, so or our outputs. So, for example, uh, you know, my inputs to a certain job might be my education, my experience, my effort, uh, you know, all those different characteristics that that I bring to the table. And then I get certain outputs from that. I get a certain salary. I get some praise and recognition, uh, other types of, of things that happen because of what I do at work and what I bring to that situation. So that's the first thing. Like I hold beliefs about that, right? The second piece is that we don't stop there. Uh, many of us, um, you know, will compare ourselves with a referent other, right? So um, in this situation, uh, give me some examples. What do you think are, who are some people you might compare yourself with? What do you think that I compare myself with? If you were, then I'm so you're, you're I'm weird, so in but, the back of the bus that like, <laughs> no, that's not true. But let's say you're in an organization and you're and you're uh, you know let's say you're a regular salaried employee instead of uh, you know a, an awesome co-owner of a consulting firm, um, and you uh, you know are are looking around and you're looking at what you bring to the table and what you're getting out of it and looking at what other people bring and what what they get out of it. Who who might some of those people be that you could, would plausibly compare yourself with? I don't. This is where I'm, I'm just really weird, Ben. Who do you compare yourself with? Well, in a, so like let's say in a in an academic setting, you would compare. I would plausibly compare myself with maybe some other people around the same um, experience level, right? Same stage in their careers, and say, hey, this person in my department, in my di discipline, who has done a sim, you know. Uh, maybe published a certain, you know, same amount of articles and does a similar job teaching, you know, I would compare myself with someone like that, right? Someone who is kind of in my, uh, another person in my department, perhaps, or another person in who, who has a similar background and job in another organization, right? So if you're think about this way, like you have an accounting background, like let's say, you know, someone you graduated, um, you know, from your master's in accountancy with, uh, and, you know, let's imagine that you both have similar career paths. One's working at one one of the big four accounting firms. One is working at the other. You might compare yourself with the other person and say, hey, this person over at this other one, they're, they're making X. I'm making this. We both have the same amount of experience, right? That's a basic example. So that's a referent other, this other person that you're comparing yourself with. We also sometimes compare ourselves with, um, it could be a friend, could be who's maybe in a completely different industry. We may compare ourselves with our spouses if they're in uh, a, a similar type of career, or maybe even not. We also even sometimes compare ourselves with a an idealized version of ourselves. 
And so, so the, the point here, we don't need to get too wrapped around the axle around who you're comparing yourself with, but it's that we do make comparisons. Like we think about this in terms of our inputs and outcomes, and we think about, you know, okay, what, what's going on with other people? I, I'm going to tell you, and it's, this is like two bullets from here, why I'm wired so weird about this stuff and some of my thoughts on, on that. But it, everything you're describing is like the world over. That it is like the norm. Mm-hmm. Those, those comparisons things. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, and we also then, we form beliefs about other people's inputs and out, outputs, right? And these could be completely unjustified. They may not be accurate, but that, the fact is that this is a perception-based idea of motivation. And so, you know, I think, okay, this, this person over this other, um, in a similar job, let's say that's my referent other. And, um, you know, gosh, they, they don't work nearly as hard as I do. They don't have nearly much experience and yet they're getting paid the same amount, right? Less inputs and, uh, but, but the same outcomes or same outputs as me. Uh, and then I start comparing those ratios and saying, Man, my inputs and out- outcomes are are different than the inputs and outcomes of this other person. Um, and then when I have this perception of inequity, if I have that, this last piece of equity theory suggests that when I perceive inequity, I'm going to be motivated to to restore that equity. You know, so for example, if I think that I am uh, I, I have a lot more experience and uh, a lot more, I've you know, exert a lot more effort. Um, but I'm getting paid the same as somebody who doesn't have as much experience and doesn't exert as much effort. I may, you know, stop working so hard. That's <laughs> a basic outcome of that. I may say, well, I'm going to restore this this balance of equity in the universe by not working so hard to to kind of re rebalance things. Um, or maybe I will think, okay, maybe I need to change my ref or another. That's a bad person to compare myself with. The point is, is that when we perceive inequity um, in this way we get motivated to restore the, that balance. Yeah, what some of the interesting stuff before I go hammer time on this other one is the outcomes of your perceptions of equity, mm-hmm. right? So people may start to conduct counterproductive work behaviors, right? You're like, I, you know, I don't know when I'm going home, but every day I'm going to take a handful of big pens in my pocket and just <laughs> steal from this organ. There's not a whole lot sitting around. We got post-it notes and pens. So I'm going to take a handful home every day, right? Or I'm going to start undermining the mission of this organization, right? Or you're not committed. You're just doing the bare. It was like office space. Like, hey, well, you don't have enough flair. What the, well, the employee <laughs> manual says I only need seven buttons on my vest i've it's got fi- seven. 15 15 it's pieces 15, of 15 15 15 yes. all right 15 pieces of flair and it's like well why would you go for the minimum because i don't care about working at tchotchkes yeah. that, you know that was the deal right what are some other outcomes when you perceive the fairness is off well so i think one way to think about it you could say okay when i perceive that there's unfairness there are certain outcomes the way i like to think about it is let's let's go back to those original ideas of justice, distributive, procedural, interpersonal, and informational, when there is a perception that those things are off, or when, depending upon my perception of the level of fairness, it influences a handful of outcomes. Things like my engagement at work, my commitment to the organization, my performance, um, my own stress and well-being at work. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research looking at the outcomes of organizational justice perceptions 
And this is kind of the, hey, everybody, this is why this matters, right? If we want to have high performers in the workplace, if we want people who are committed and engaged in their work, it behooves us as leaders and managers to make sure that we're doing things in a fair way and that we're uh, it, doing things that will increase that perception of fairness and doing it, in, you know, not just in a manipulative way, as we always say, uh, actually doing things that are fair. Uh, if there are, is a perception of unfairness, then those things tend to go down. Motivation goes down, performance goes down, more stress, less well-being. And as you mentioned, some of these counterproductive work behaviors where people may do everything from uh, you know, taking the Bic pen to uh, downright sabotage to other undermining other coworkers, uh, gossiping, those types of things that, that are not helpful. All right. This is where I go hammer time on, on, on this thing. What if all these motivations are just wrong? And I'm not going to say 100% wrong because there's a kernel of truth in certain stuff. But a big part of my involvement in our consulting engagements and our firm here, Ben, is that we're saying a lot of this stuff out there in the world is just not even on the same universe of where we need to be. So if you start comparing yourself, right? Let's say you have a classics um a classics experts with a degree from St. John's College who elects to teach K through 12 education. Maybe he has a PhD from Oxford as well. He's he's way smarter than a lot of his peers. He's a pedagogical expert. He's started the the first like intramural croquet team in southern Wisconsin and he could be making a billion bucks somewhere, but he's saying like, I want to do K through 12. What, what craziness to compare his salary to an investment bankers. Right. But right? that wouldn't be, I don't think, I don't think that would be plausible anyway. Right. I don't, I don't think that but, a reasonable, per, a a reasonable person would choose in that situation would choose an investment banker as a referent other. Johnny, Johnny Depp versus. Um, somebody working in the CDC. We have some comparisons that we put around fame, looks, and wealth, and that happens in the workplace that are just the most bizarre comparisons. I live in Park City. I have somebody that's doing like a great job. They're an IT professional, all that kind of stuff. And they're just like, well, I just don't have $40,000 to redo the... Um, landscaping in my backyard and they feel less than and it's hmm. like what what so what? i think i think what you're getting at here and perhaps how i would react to some of that is that and we've done episodes on this i believe in the past is that social comparison is not helpful in a lot of ways instead of comparing yourselves yourself with other people it's probably more helpful to compare yourself with who you were yesterday <laughs> and are you doing better today than you were doing yesterday? Use yourself as your referent other, if that makes any sense. Uh, because well, and it's not an ideal self, like the idealized self. And we see this in music, right? Like you have a good gig, right? Because I played music professionally. You have a good gig. All your improvised solos were banging. You're like, whoa, that's how I play. That's who I am. I'm this banging person. Then you do your next gig and it's like, maybe you have a slight cold. And you play horribly and you're like, I'm trash. I'm not even worth, I should burn my guitars or donate them to somebody who's truly worthy. And neither one of those is correct. 
you your lit your life is made miserable by your cognitive distortions around how things should be not how things could be you know i could get a little bit better and maybe play a better solo next time i could learn this extra thing or if i'm at a big four that's paying me less than that other big four why am i sticking around right there's that idea of like being in the driver's seat of who you are based on the options you have versus things are supposed to be fair but things are not fair Back to my LeBron James, and I'm not as good looking as Ben. I mean, <laughs> like, I'm not jealous of Ben. I'm like, man, this is awesome. Ben looks great. He he looks good I'm, on our website. I'm feeling weird over here now. <laughs> and our and our Zoom conversations, people are like, man, these guys are super great. But I'm not jealous of how Ben looks, right? And there is stuff, there is literature that talks about being good looking might help you in certain situations, like executives that look good make more money. But who cares? Right? Well, I think you well, you might care if you're not making any money. <laughs> I mean, well, that's, right? That's that's something that we gotta look at as a society, but as an individual <laughs> thing, right? Here's another example. Um, this lady I know who was in tears about, you know, a lot of her peers did better than her. She has a special needs kids, and she kind of derailed her career path and went and got, I think it was a master's in special education because she wanted to be able to meet the needs of her child. But that set their family on a different financial trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. And was feeling bad about that. I said, wait a minute. Forget these guys. Are you and your husband happy? Oh, yeah. Well, then just work your plan, right? Look at the landscape. Look at your stuff. Look at the landscape. Yeah. Well, and and that's, that's, that's going back to my, yep. Well, that's going back to my original point that social comparison. So part of this idea of equity theory and thinking about your motivation and so forth and perceptions of fairness, um, has to do with the idea that, you know, inherent in that is this idea of social comparison. And I, I don't advocate getting too wrapped up in social comparison. Now, some social comparison can be helpful because noticing how other people behave and figuring out, you know, kind of what's appropriate, what's not, like that is a helpful human characteristic. Like you might find um, a better way to do something. So you, like, right. don't, don't close your eyes and start going on a 10 mile run, right? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> it, exactly. So it is helpful to notice what other people are doing, uh, but you, you have to be careful. And when you get um, super wrapped up in social comparison, I think our, I remember now our episode that we did on this was called Keeping Up with the Joneses, I believe. And talking about, you know, how if, if and, and we also always see this curated version of what everybody's doing on LinkedIn and on, uh, you know, professionally or personally, we see that on Facebook and so forth. So, you know, just be careful with that. that that's where I would come down on. I don't think we're going to we're not going to change human behavior and say no one's ever going to compare themselves with each other. And and in some situations, it can be helpful. Like if you're just. If if you realize, hey, I'm being paid like 50% less than all of my coworkers, like that should kind of, and, and we do the same amount of work and have the same, we bring the same stuff to the table. That should motivate you in a way to do something about that, I would think. Um, now, there are some individual differences there. Some people, maybe it doesn't bother them as much, but for a lot of people, it would. And, and, and rectifying that injustice. You should do something about that. I agree. Yeah. And, and you should ask. You should ask. Why are you guys paying me half? Right. 
right? And then you decide what you're going to do from there if you have options and choices. But the right. main thing is sensing your environment and then responding. And the thing that should guide how you respond is your values and who you daggone want to be, right? And that's all this other stuff. I would say most of the stuff we see out, out in the world and it's just people reacting and being a sack of behaviors rather than you know, putting up a mast of their own integrity and idea of selfhood and setting sail with that. Sure. I I agree 100% that it is that having your your own core values and d- direction and mission in life is very important. And and that's, you know, having a, a strong sense of self will help with a lot of this. But anyway, um, good stuff. All right. So we've talked about Unfairness perceptions. Maybe we should move now to some implications for uh Yeah, so what do we do with this? We got yeah, all these ideas. We are, we're yeah. with you. So what do we do? Yeah, I think very at the very basic level, uh, don't forget about the fact that individual people and organizations will be thinking about fairness in, in a lot of different ways. So as a manager, you need to think carefully about how your words and actions might be perceived. If you are in doubt about something, let's say you're going to make some sort of change. Maybe ask a few trusted advisors. Maybe maybe these are some trusted subordinates, even better, right? That you say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. Can you give me a little feedback? What do you think about this? Start socializing that idea prior to making a final decision. Get that trusted input beforehand. Um, and, and remember that you know perceptions really do matter. Yeah, work-life balance is important too mm-hmm. for individuals. Um, just remember, you're not your work. But you're not only your life either, right? So there's a the balance doesn't mean 50-50. The balance means, you know, you're gonna cut the pie, how makes sense for you and your situation in life and those kinds of things. So value your life outside of work and value your work. It can help temper some of those emotional, visceral reactions to what the heck's going on. Unfairness at work. Yeah, it's called work, buddy. I shouldn't have to show up here and work. So another piece is just to remember that these perceptions of fairness really are a big part of what drives uh, perceptions of organizational support. And to the degree that you can uh, have a fair organization, um, people will feel that the organization cares about their well-being, that it values their contributions, and that leads to a number of great outcomes as well. One of the things in orgs is everything feels like somebody's like it's really salient right now. And I I've said in, in consulting engagements, wait, is anybody shooting at us? Like this is not Afghanistan guys, right? You can slow down mm. few decisions and organizations have to may be made so quickly. And this is kind of for leaders and stuff too, that you can't just pause a moment and explain the process behind them. So people can see they're not just a victim of your decision. They get to see the whole procedural justice and everything that went in to make it. And sometimes if you're the leader and it is unfair and be like, guys, I realize this isn't the fairest thing, but that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. And just own some of that can buy you some credibility because sometimes unfair things happen. You can have some bad leadership at the top of the ship or something, or there's just like a structural shift. That's just the kind of stuff that happens in academia. It will become it becomes in, incredibly apparent very quickly when uh, there is a violation of procedural justice. 
people will very quickly point out that, hey, process wasn't followed in making that decision. And that's why it's just so important. The implication here for the leader is remember that process really matters. How decisions get made and how I communicate about how those decisions were being made is critical to a healthy organization. Uh, You just can't get around that, I don't think. And like you said, there are very few situations in which you actually have to make a decision now. And uh, unless if the building's burning down, no, we're not going to talk about why we're leaving. We're just going to go. But uh, if there's uh, some sort of other larger change, let's say in in an academic setting, we're changing the curriculum, we're changing some structure, we're moving around some departments, whatever, uh, take the time to explain and make sure you're following a good process. If you want culture. That's yeah, if, if you care. Yeah, if you don't yeah. care. <laughs> if you care about how, <laughs> this is all assuming that you want to be a good leader and uh, that you want a healthy organization. <laughs> you know, Ben, I'm I'm a wide eyes wide open cynic. I'm gonna look I'm gonna open the door and look at all the garbage, but then I want to plot a way to a better place looking at the reality that's oftentimes suboptimal, right? Mm-hmm. And so for leaders, you know. Let's talk about a little bit of this, some implications for them, a little bit of the research that touches them is that the idea is like the, the, you know, you crawled up in the management by being a jack wagon and now you're the evil overlord helping and enabling other evil overlords to inflict pain, lack of fairness, cruelty, and no work-life balance on your minions who are now quiet quitting in masses, (laughs) right? Like that's that. That's just not true. It's fun because you have like a good guy and a bad guy. You could probably make it like a Star Wars sequel based on that kind of story. You know, it's just really hard being in the Rebel Alliance. I don't feel like I have employee voice, you know, or something like <laughs> that. Right. Or in the Empire, I'd say. Right. But they do have good benefits and could destroy a planet. You know, so that's not the case. One of the key pieces of research around this area is that. You know, most people want to be fair. It It's really hard. And that's why you see people being more unfair through the guise of the Internet where they don't have to be face to face with somebody. But in organizations, we're face to face and work with people all the time. What they found is as work stress and busyness hit managers, fairness activities decreased. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they just got so busy they didn't take the time to explain the procedures mm-hmm. or all those kinds of things. That sounds totally reasonable. Like if you are super swamped, you might be a little bit short or terse with your kids or your spouse. No. Not because you don't like them. Well, you wouldn't, Ben. You, you're you're <laughs> going to be not. sweet all the time. Uh-huh. But, but you might. And so this idea that they're evil overlords being unfair is actually doesn't bear out in some of the research that has been out there. But there's a positive side on this, which is if you're aware of it, that just taking a little bit of time for what and we're going to talk about these justice behaviors. These are specific fairness behaviors that you can do as a leader. And if you're an organization, you can train people to do that. They You can have both higher output and productivity and you can have high fairness at the same time. That's great. So let's talk about some of these specific justice behaviors that managers can do to increase these perceptions of fairness and to actually just be fair. So if you're driving while you're listening to this, you know, pull over so you can take some notes 
I've got five of them for you. We also have some good documents that we'll link to in the show notes that uh, reference a lot of these things. But number one, make decision-making transparent. You got to make decision-making transparent. Talk about how decisions are being made. Number two, give employees the opportunity to provide some input and feedback. That's that whole employee voice thing. Very important. Number three, acknowledge employees' contributions. That helps them feel like they're being heard. It increases organizational support. Great stuff. Number four, make time for employees to provide input on decisions when you can. So, you know, if if you're thinking about doing some sort of change, you have some sort of decision that you got to make, uh, if you can, and oftentimes I think you can, if you really think about it, give people a way to provide some input on that. And the last one, treat employees with dignity and respect. So important. That's a key part of that interpersonal justice that we talked about earlier. So those are five key justice behaviors that I think will will go a long way in helping managers stay out of trouble on this one. The themes across all of these is firing on all cylinders. If your concept of leadership is I do the thinking, you guys do the doing, then your blind spots, your biases are all at risk and play. But if you're really like, hey, I've got some ideas, but can we make sure these are some, you know, if you make decision making transparent and you have a supportive culture, you might have some cool employees that point out some errors in your decision making, Mm -hmm. right? Which you want, if you have some errors, you want to capture that, right? Mm -hmm. And having time for your employees to give you feedback, having input, one, you're developing your employees. Everybody's like, why can't my employees just take some initiative? Well, do you let them practice taking initiative and practice thinking? If you're not doing that, you're not developing your employees. And it's that idea of firing on all cylinders. Two heads are better than one. Ten heads are better than two, right? Really, really try to build an organization where your employees are thinking about critical business problems, processes, tasks, and then daggone empower them to help you change and fix and improve. And I would also suggest that Uh, You don't only want to just ask people for their input on decisions and create that two-way communication. You actually want to incorporate some of their ideas into your decisions. Because if you, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you only are asking and you're getting all this input and you don't do anything with it, they're going to stop after a while (laughs) even caring, right? Uh, And and I, I think this is really important because it shows a level of, this requires a level of maturity and humility as a leader. Like you said, thinking that, hey, I don't necessarily know everything. I want your input. I need your input. And, you know, if you if you set up this dynamic where, hey, I am the perfect leader, I do the thinking, you do the doing, then people aren't going to provide their input and they're just going to see things in in that same way. And so I, I think it's important to take action. Uh, and, and maybe even, you know, if you show people that you've changed a decision based upon their input. And then you actually say that, right? And say, hey, guys, I just want to say, I was headed down this one path. I asked for your input. You know, you, you, you know, I got some great ideas here. And so I thought about it and I was like, man, I was kind of wrong on these different pieces. So we're going to go this way instead. What do you think of that? That is just a, such a different tone. And I would rather be on that team, I think, than, uh, than the alternative. Yeah, you don't want to face plant when everybody in your org is silently, they're not saying it out loud because you don't let them, are like, <laughs> told you so. Yeah, and, yeah. And Ben, how many <laughs> orgs have we got? And it's like, oh yeah, we do an employee survey every year. Oh, cool. What do you do with this? 
Uh, well, we do an employee survey every year. And then, <laughs> and then we have to go beg these organizations. Guys, for real, this time, tell us what's going on. We yep. know in the past nobody gave a rip. Right, those Ugh. guys are just, we have to beg because you come to us when your company's going bankrupt or your org's failing or, you know, you're lost, you don't know what to do. Meanwhile, your employees have been saying, we've been telling you so many times, you big dummy, that we're not going <laughs> to tell you anymore, right? Yeah, and so, so we do these surveys. I know it is, God, it is so obvious, but they do it all the time. Listen, so what are you going to do? We're going to do these surveys. Then we're actually going to tell the organization what the results of the surveys are. And then we're going to tell them what we're going to do about it with a specific project plan on how we're going to deliver on each item in that survey. Mm -hmm. That buys credibility with your people, folks. That's right. Gosh. So let's touch, a, <laughs> as as we start to bring this this plane in for a landing, let's, let's talk a little bit about some implications at the organizational level. And I think one of them is really culture and climate that, um, you know, setting that tone at the top that fairness matters and, you know, that that you expect and support and reward managers who do those justice behaviors. That's that's a great place to start. Um, and, and realizing that, hey, it's not only what we do as an organization, but it's how we do it. We want to win in the right way. Uh, I think that's a great place to start. And these, and these are key concrete tasks. Don't have these values. We have integrity. Did Billy show integrity today? Here's how we show integrity at Company X. These mm -hmm. behaviors. Look, Billy did behaviors two, three, and four. Billy gets a promotion, right? Right. We gave those five tasks, making decision-making transparency, making time for employees, all those things that you got to rewind and write down. Bake those into your performance reviews. Bake those into your training. When somebody takes the time to, hey, this is where Filson made our decision-making transparency. You know, he gets a $80 Red Lobster gift card or whatever. <laughs> Red Lobster, right? Uh, whatever makes sense in your organizations, you got to show your employees, your management, your senior management that these are the concrete behaviors we expect you to do and we're going to reward and promote on that yeah and one thing that i you said that i really want to hone in on just real quick here is that uh in those times when you are doing things like promoting people or doing those things like giving re, you know rewards and recognition those are key opportunities for leadership to emphasize what we care about around here and saying this is why this person is getting recognized. This aligns with, you know, we have these core values and these behaviors. This is, these are the, this is how this person exemplified those. And this is why we really want to celebrate this person and their behavior today. It's just, it's just an awesome way to, to help to uh, show that there's some action, that there's some recognition of, you know, what people are doing behind just these platitudes of, hey, we're going to do what's good for the company, right? So good. Another thing is you may have a cohort of jack wagon managers on your hands. So it's going to take a while to get those guys trained up and doing better. But dear God, like make the what sure the ones you're onboarding are closer to what you want, right? Because you get to get those guys off the shelf, you know, LinkedIn or wherever. <laughs> and so, so that means in your job descriptions, first of all, these job descriptions are horrible. Most of the ones that I see on the web or when we go into an org to help them with this kind of stuff, you're, you're has this many years experience, this, this, and this. 
what if you also had, you know, managers display fairness to their teams here? You can communicate a lot about your culture and about the kind of things that you want. You know, our manager in this role is comfortable making decision-making transparent. You know, you can write those key behavioral norms into your job descriptions for internal employees that are applying for a promotion as well as external so you can start weeding out and making a it more likely that you're going to find these people. Right. So that what that does ideally is it actually would uh, shape your applicant pool to ones who actually, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I could get on board with this at least. And it actually would start to socialize your employees before they even apply for a job. Right. So it's like saying, hey, here's here are the values and behaviors that we really want around here. And if those include things like fairness and these various types of behaviors, I think that's a great thing. So awesome. Uh, so today on the Indigo podcast, we've focused on fairness at work. We've talked about these different types of justice or fairness in organizations. We've talked about some of those outcomes of fair and unfair treatment. And of course, we've talked about some implications for people, leaders and organizations. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.